happened in the first section of that chapter is a story about a coalition of some kings who rebelled against another king who kept them for 12 years under his reign and then in the 13th year they rebelled and the first war we read about in the scripture happened and uh, when the king who lost now his control over them realized that he should do something to reassure his power he once again summoned others to help him and they went to what is now known as the Valley of the Dead Sea, where Sodom and Gomorrah used to be. And he took them captive. But of course, Lot, the nephew of, of Abram, was living in Sodom. And they took Lot too. And that is where we pick up the story now. With this, uh, I have cut out all the difficult names to read. Uh, and if you want to go and read that at home, of course, you, you're mostly welcome. Actually, you should do so because it is the word of God. But if I, in the sermon, further than refer to King K, it is King Kido Leoma. So I'll just refer to King K to make it uh, easier for us. Verse 13. Now one who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, uh, the Amorite, a brother of Eskol and Anah all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 13 and 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack, attack them and he routed them pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and other people. After Abram returned from defeating King Kay and all the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaweh, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of the heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. 
Then Abram gave, gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and, give, and the, keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a thong or a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, Eskol, and Mumbra. Let them have their share. May the Lord help us to understand this portion of the word of God. This was the first war in, in the Bible, recorded in the Bible. Someone estimated that from the 2,678 wars in the 12th century, the total of wars increased to 13,380 in the first quarter of the 9th century. And someone estimated that up to close Close to the end of the 19th century, 14 billion people died in wars in the human race. This is probably just to say that we live in a very, very hostile world. It's a world full of sin and ugliness. There's one major mistake any Christian can make. And that is to think that by the moment he becomes a Christian or she becomes a Christian, that all the problems in the world has come to an end. It might be that we understand the Bible wrongly in that sense that we think of our Canaan as the place of rest as the promised land to which we have now arrived, serving the Lord. But it's not like that in the Bible. The Christian is, although he has a membership and a citizenship in heaven, and although heaven comes into our heart the moment we become Christians. And although we know that we go to heaven one day, and although we know that we have peace in our hearts with God now, we are not there yet. When the Lord called Abram and, 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 and promised to him the land, that land that the Lord promised to him was for Abraham, of course, the place that he would reside until the Lord called him to himself. But the Bible also says that Abraham, although he went into the promised land, looked forward to the city not built by hands. So although he was in the promised land, 
He was not there yet. While he was in the promised land preparing for that ultimate address that he had, there was work to be done. So his promised land, his Canaan, was in the same time where God wanted him to win battles for him. When the Lord called his people out of Egypt and he took them through the wilderness, he promised that he would give them the promised land, a land which he introduced to them as the land overflowing with milk and honey. He also said to them, and you will, you will live in houses that you have not built. He also said to him, you will have vineyards that you have not planted. So you would like to think if you were in an Israelite at that time, well, that is the place to go to, isn't it? You're just walking and you live and you've got a royal time doing nothing. It was a different story for them because the Lord said, although you would live in houses you have not built and although you will have vineyards you have not planted and although the word, this, this land is an overflowing with, with milk and honey, you have to occupy that and dispossess the people. So when the people got into the promised land, that's where their problems actually started, isn't it? They had the Hivites and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and there are four more other heights and tights that I can't even remember the names now. There are seven of them mentioned every, every now and then. That they had to conquer, they had to battle, so that their Canaan became the land in which they would now occupy day after day more and more for the Lord so that they would prepare themselves then for the ultimate Canaan. And you might think, how does it apply to us in our, in our life in the church? Of course you and I are in the name of our Lord Jesus under the banner of Christ. Can I use the word? Onward Christian soldiers. Onward as to war. We don't use weapons. We do not dispossess people and chasing them out of their land. We would not want to do things the way some of the Muslims would like to do it and kill any, every infidel in a car bomb or whatever the case may be. The Lord says he sends his church out into this world, which is in, in, in more than one sense our Canaan here on earth. We have to do battle with this world, and we have to, to, to uh, conquer this world so that in the end, God would take us into the heavenly Canaan, where we have a permanent address. We don't do it by force. We do it with the Spirit of God, with His Word, by prayer. We do it through evangelism and through missions. 
and the world progresses up to the point where when all the elect, the full number of the elect is gathered into the kingdom of God and then Jesus will come and then we will receive from him the heavenly Canaan. The point that I want to make is this. The Bible wants to make is this. Although Abram was in the promised land, although the Lord said to him, look to the east and the west and the north and the south, go through this place, walk through it, I'll give it to you. All of a sudden, Abram found himself engaged in battle. And Abram, from the beginning, had to learn this. And that is the theme of our sermon this morning. Victory belongs to God. Victory belongs to God. This war was between King Kay and his followers and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Four kings fighting against five kings. At first, it looks as if the description of this war has nothing to do with the story of God's unfolding covenant of grace with his servant Abram. We can almost ask, what is the significance of the war between four kings on the one hand and five on the other? And we don't even know where they have lived. We, we can't really pinpoint specifically today this, today, this is where they lived. We don't know the exact boundaries of their kingdoms or their territories. And we don't exactly know what the impact of this conflict is or was on the immediate people around them. And it's never mentioned in the scriptures. Why is it included in God's word? Well, I think it's there for a purpose. We cannot even tried to take sides between these kings. For both sides were bad. King Kay was the conqueror. And we know what came from Sodom and Gomorrah, nothing good. But the significance of this part of God's word and the way, why it was in, incorporated into the word of God lies in the role of Abraham who would play what, what he did because of Lot. Here is Lot caught up in the whole thing because he lived in Sodom. And of course, you know, you're known by your friends. It was Lot's choice to be dragged into. It was not Lot's, Lot's choice to be dragged into this. But there he was in the wrong spot when it all happened. This big king with his bundle, started a conquering voyage. Impressive, one might say. They defeated eight nations and cities before slaying Bursa, the king of Sodom, and his four allies. That is impressive. But they made one mistake. They took Lot with him. And the New Testament calls Lot a righteous man. He was in the wrong spot. Don't, don't even doubt that. He made the wrong choices in his life, but the Bible still say he was a righteous man. He was one who belonged to God. And now it was Abram's duty to go 
and secure his, his life. Because there's no one, not one of God's eternally elect people who will ever get lost. God is concerned for them. And therefore, he called Abram. The Bible says in, in John chapter 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Lot, Lot might have thought that was the last of him. He's taken captive now and that's the end. No one will come to his rescue. God never forgets those whom he has elected. And Abram is used as he would use the church today to make to go to war against the forces of evil, to overcome that with the gospel message and to rescue the unsaved. That's our job. So the one man came, uh, escaped and he came to Abraham and he said, well, he told him the story and God's power then is displayed in the weakness of his elect. Let's look at Abraham. He armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his house, the Bible says. Five kings with five cities of people. And there was Abraham with 318. And Abraham was no soldier. He was no, he was no uh, general in the army. He never had been exposed to anything of this. He didn't say, oh Lord, they are so powerful or they are so mighty, I won't make it. Lord, perhaps you could rescue a lot. This was an impressive army he was against. They were sweeping the land and they had the numbers and they had probably had the warfare. They know this. But God is not looking at numbers or the power of people or the number of people. When he does work, he always does it because he can and he calls people who in humble trust are available and willing. He uses the weak to put to shame the mighty. We read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame those things which are mighty. And there was this insignificant Abraham, had no experience of war, with a bit more than 300 people. And now they're going to battle with five kings. We read about the thorn in the flesh of the apostle. What exactly this thorn was, we're not sure. But twice in this chapter, the apostle brings home the idea that we need to be humble before God. We need to be weak before God so he can work out his plan of redemption in this world. The Lord revealed himself to the apostle when, I say, when he says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's not, of course, not the only time that this happened. It's, it's, it's the story of the Bible. 
Gideon. In Judges 6 and 7, there was this Midianite multitudes who came against him. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and called him a mighty man of valor. And his reaction was, I am the worst of it all and the most humble of it all. And the Lord says, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Instead, my clan is the weakest of Manasseh, and I am the least of my father's house. He was the weakest, he says, and God used him, and he sort of culled among the people who, who actually tried to join this war, and there was Gideon with no experience of war, eventually left with 300 men, and the Lord says, I do this so that you can, cannot come back in the end and say, we've done it by our might. 300 men, and they slay the Midianites. There's another chapter in the Bible, Second King verse, uh, 7, Second King chapter 7. We have got four men with leprosy. They were not allowed in the city. It's, it's a tragic story. They were not allowed in the city. But those who were in the city were cut off because the city was sieged. And at a point they were actually trying to, they were, they were trading in and selling their own children for food. That's how hopeless the situation was. So these lepers, they, they, they sat there and said, well, if we remain out of the city, we'll die. Or we go into the city, it's not better there, we'll die there too. So let's go to the Syrians who besieged the city. If we go there, we'll die too. But maybe we could just have a feed before we die. What happened when they got to the, to the camp? There was nothing. What happened? Did the Lord use their footsteps to sound like a vast army so that the Syrians actually took off and left everything behind, food and everything? It says there, For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses the noise of a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the king of the Egyptians to attack us. Was just four leapers, outcasts of society, who made a first attempt to walk across to the Syrians. Abraham sought his 318 men and King K was defeated. So he brought back all the goods. And he brought back his brother Lot, his brother's son Lot, and his goods, as well as the women and the people. The soldiers mocked him. That, I mean, in Jesus Christ, he was the only one on the cross. The sign of weakness with his hands nailed to the cross, where the soldiers mocked him, the Pharisees despised him, the people ridiculed him, save yourself. But the message of the cross is foolishness 
to those who are perishing. And therefore, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Here, right in the beginning of the Bible, where the first war is recorded, God included his church, not in impressive numbers, to bring about victory, to have his plan of redemption unfolding. We here now today even learn this important lesson. The Lord has not called us and saved us to lock us up in some sort of safe room where no harm will ever touch us. God calls us and he saved us. When we put up our hand to follow him and if we perhaps walk down the aisle to fill out a cart and say, well, I'll follow Jesus, or whatever the case may be, as how you came to faith in the Lord, you know what happened then? You signed up for war. You signed up for the battle. And you are with me in an army where the numbers are not great. We are not impressive in this world. But we are on the Lord's side. And he wants you and me to, like Abram, go after those who are lost. That's our Canaan. That's our job. God is not looking how big our church is. He does not look how strong you are or how influential or rich you are. He's looking at your availability. Your humbleness, your meekness, and your willingness in faith to answer to the call to defend the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ and to go after those who are still lost. That's God's plan. May the Lord help us to be available. Like Isaiah, say, here am I, send me. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you now that we could hear the word of God again. And maybe we do not exactly know what we sign up for. And maybe we are weak in ourselves and we think that we cannot do anything, but then we have heard over and over again, it is not by number, it's not by power, it's not by might, by your spirit. And if you've used in the beginning only 11 apostles and a few other disciples to then conquer the world so that even in this place in Australia we may know that we have heard that gospel so, Lord, we pray that you will use us and the rest of your church to continue to march on and conquer and spiritually dispossess 
so that people will come in and find salvation in Christ. Amen. Hymn number 88. Hymn number 88. Now thank we all our God. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.